In our sermon series, we are going through the book of Colossians, so I'll encourage you to open to Colossians chapter 2. We're at kind of a junction point in the book. Uh, Most of the commentaries that I have read have said that this is the junction between Paul's introduction and the main body of the letter. Uh, This is sermon number five, so it was a long introduction, but um, there is a a junction here which allows us to kind of start fresh because he's going to restate the theme of this letter at the very beginning of our reading. And so I'm going to encourage you uh, to have your Bibles open to this passage, and if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand one more time for the reading of God's Word. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human traditions, based on elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled with him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised with him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So, one of the challenges of the book of Colossians is that we're, we are reading a letter, we're reading someone's mail, and we don't necessarily have all the information about what's going on in their lives when they received this letter. And so one of the things that scholars will go back and forth about is trying to identify the Colossian heresy, which is whatever it is that Paul is arguing against. Because he tells us, he tells them to avoid it. You heard him mention that in the reading today, but he never sits down and writes out for us what they we're saying. So we can only piece together parts of it, and, and there's debate about really what it was. But what we know is going on, based on what Paul is saying, is that someone is telling the Colossians that following Jesus isn't enough. You may have Jesus, but you need more. You're either not good enough yet, or there, you don't have everything that you could have. And this could be happening in one of two ways, or both. If if it's Gentiles telling them this, then it's probably because Gentiles are unused to committing to one God. And so the Gentiles are thinking, why would you invest everything in one God? You should have a portfolio of gods. You should have, you know, follow Jesus. That's fine. I don't care if you follow Jesus. There are weirder gods out there than that. But, you know, from a Roman perspective, but, you know, you could also throw in a little Zeus and maybe a little, you know, there's a God that specializes in giving you good crops. And, hey, you're a blacksmith. There's a God of blacksmiths. He'll help you have a more prosperous business. Put, put together a portfolio. On the other hand, there could be Jews or Jewish Christians who are saying, okay, you think, you think you're forgiven, that's fine, but you, don't, you aren't good enough to be in the presence of God, right? There's, there's, there are, there's more you have to do to be able to experience God, either in the temple or there are also versions of Judaism out there. It's very possible that Paul came out of one of these traditions where they would have kind of uh, charismatic experiences of God. 
And, but you had to be pure in order for that to happen. You had to follow the temple rules if you're going to experience God. So they'd say, hey, yeah, it's great that you're in the church, but, you know, there's another level. You really need to go further in. You need to do better so you can get more because just having Jesus isn't enough. And so Paul, throughout the book, he's really, the, really the theme of Colossians is convincing the church that Jesus is enough. And, and convincing them to commit completely to Jesus because it's not enough just to say, well, I'm going to only follow Jesus, but you actually then have to live your life only following Jesus. And so the passage that we're reading today, he lays out a case for why they should be uh, commit, fully committed to Jesus. And then he's also, he's going to answer two questions for us, for the modern church at least. I'm not saying that he had these questions in mind, but at least for us, he's answering two questions. One of them is uh, why we should why we should only follow Jesus, and why we, how we can know that Jesus fulfills us entirely. And then the second question is, how do I know that Jesus has fulfilled me? How do I know that all of this that you've promised has actually happened? So we'll start, as we're going through, we'll address that first question. The first thing Paul says, again, I, this is kind of restating the theme of the book. He says, so then, just as you have received Jesus, Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. He wants them to be committed to walking in Jesus, following Jesus and only Jesus. And his first argument for why is because you have received Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, it, that has, those phrases have turned into Christianese, and so we don't necessarily hear them the way the original audience would have heard them. We, when somebody says, receive Jesus as your Savior, we kind of think like, God is offering a present, and I decide I'm going to receive the present. And that's not really what the wording means. The wording there is actually also used in other places for receiving a tradition, receiving a teaching. And what it more closely means is uh, accepting that the teaching is true. Uh, receiving it and, and, and accepting it and letting it change you. And the truth that is being accepted is Christ Jesus is Lord, which again, a lot of Christianese, what that actually means is King Jesus is the ruler. Christ is a royal title. Lord is a position of authority. So they have, you have what he's saying is you have already acknowledged that Jesus is Lord. That's what, it, that's what you did. That's why you joined the church, right? So you've already accepted that Jesus is Lord. You agree that. You have acknowledged that, okay? And that hasn't changed. So if you still accept that Jesus is Lord, why would you go anywhere else? He's reminding them of their commitment, the commitment that they've already made. C.S. Lewis has a great description of faith, and, and he's talk, he, he says, faith, he, when he was an atheist, he says he thought that faith was just saying, I believe this is true, and I'm not going to listen to any evidence, and I'm going to stick my fingers in my ears, la, 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 la. He says, that's not, what, that's not a virtue. Why is faith a virtue? Because faith is actually committing to what you know to be true. Because one of the things that happens, the Colossians are being tempted toward, and we're tempted toward every day, is you find yourself straying from obedience to Jesus without ever doubting that he's in charge, right? Like, you, you haven't, you, it's not that you've stopped believing that Jesus is Lord, but in your everyday living, you're not acting like it. That happens to us a lot, where if someone were to put you on the spot and say, is Jesus king? You would say yes, and then you realize, yeah, I haven't actually been acting that way. I've been behaving in a very different way. And faith is staying true to what you actually know to be true, 
and letting it work itself out in your behavior. And so what Paul is saying is, first of all, if you're wondering why you should be following only Jesus, it's because you acknowledge that he's the only one worth following. That's the whole reason you're here. So the first thing you got to do is just remember what you've already committed to. Then he says, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. There's two important things that Paul is saying here. First of all, he hasn't told us what the heresy is, but he tells us that it's empty. And he also, if you look, he tells us how to identify something that is empty, how to identify a false teaching. Even though he doesn't describe to us the particulars of what the Colossians were being told, he tells us the line. And the line is, it's anything that makes you, that teaches you to find fulfillment in something other than Christ. Right? He doesn't have to be more specific than philosophy and empty seat based on human tradition, based on the elements of the truth, rather than Christ. He could have also said, um, no one takes you captive through anything other than Christ. Because that's the key point. We have an endless ability to come up with new teachings. Human beings are very creative that way. So he doesn't need to give us, he couldn't give us an exhaustive list of all the ways you can be led astray, but he can give you the common theme, is anything that tells you that you need more than Jesus is leading you astray. It's empty, because there is no more than Jesus. Why? Because the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Now, if you remember, this is a a rephrasing of something he said in Colossians chapter 1. And when we came across it there, we pointed out that he is using language from the Old Testament in in Psalm 67 about God living in the temple. So he's comparing Jesus to the temple. What Paul is saying here, what's probably happening, and this is why it's probably more likely that the the people um, teaching, uh, leading the Colossians astray are Jews or Jewish Christians. So what they're probably saying is, yeah, you may have Jesus, but... God's in the temple. Like, Jesus went up to heaven. The one place we know God is present is in the temple. That's where God lives. That's what the Old Testament tells us. He lives in the temple. So they're saying, you may have Jesus, but can you go in the temple? Can you really experience God's presence? And Paul is saying, God's not in the temple. God invested all of his fullness into Jesus. God invested everything into Jesus. There's nothing in the temple. In point of fact, God never actually moved back into the second temple. If you read the story of the building of the second temple, God never shows up. What Paul is saying is God is in Jesus, so Jesus is the only place that God can be found. So anybody offering you fulfillment outside of Jesus is offering you nothing. Because God can't be found anywhere else. God has focused his presence in Jesus alone. And if we are created by God, and we are designed by God, and we are designed by God for life with God, then you cannot find any kind of real fulfillment outside of God. So you can't find any kind of real fulfillment outside of Jesus. I'm not just talking about your spiritual fulfillment. I'm not just talking about where you can have a meaningful religious experience. I'm talking about any kind of real fulfillment of you as a person, the meaning of your life, the reason why you're here. All of that fulfillment can only be found through God, and God can only be found in Jesus Christ. Now, the retort might be, 
from those Jewish Christians might be, well, yeah, it's in Jesus, but Jesus was a good Jewish man, so he is only giving out the fullness of God according to the same rules as the Old Testament. That's why Paul immediately says, you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. Now notice, Paul has never been to this church. And he says, you have been filled by him. He knows they have been filled by him. How does he know that? Well, what he knows about the people he's writing to is that they are members of the church. That they have joined the assembly of people who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ. And so knowing that, knowing that, he can say, you have been filled by him because Jesus doesn't have a tiered system of membership where you have to do certain things to get more of God from him. He fills his people to fullness. He fills them. He doesn't give some people more than others. The Bible does talk about different gifts, but it doesn't, take, it doesn't talk about different ranks. It doesn't talk about earning more of God. So Jesus fulfills his people. And the other thing that he's emphasizing is that he fulfills them beyond what anyone else can offer. Because he also kind of heads off the Gentiles at the past by saying, remember, Jesus is over every power and authority. So there's no other power and authority that could offer you something that doesn't ultimately come from Jesus. We talked about that uh, in a previous sermon where people might say, well, yeah, but you really need, you really need to worship the emperor so that the emperor, you can get the help of the emperor and have him on your side. Well, yeah, but then remember that the only reason why the emperor is alive is because Jesus is holding the atoms of his body together every moment, right? Like nobody has anything to offer beyond what Jesus has. So Jesus is the only one that can fulfill us, and Jesus will fulfill his people. He doesn't withhold. He doesn't ask you to find something else in addition to him. Now, this, this rhetoric that the, the Colossians were hearing, evidently saying that they weren't good enough, that they hadn't done enough, that they needed something else, it seems like it was also focused on their, a lot of it was focused on their purity, on their worthiness. Because the first thing that would happen when a Gentile said, I, wanted, I want to know Jesus, or I want to be close to God, sorry. But Gentile approached a Jew and said, I want to be close to God. First thing they would say, if they're a man, is, have you been circumcised? The very first barrier to get to the temple is the gate that only Jews can cross, and you're only Jewish. The very first thing that has to be true is that males in your family are circumcised. So circumcision is the first barrier to holiness, to entrance into the temple. So if a Gentile, if, if Gentile Christians were being told that they, you know, if a Gentile said, well, Paul seems to think I'm okay, they'd say, well, are you circumcised? And Paul says, you were also circumcised with him by a circumcision not done by hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So what he's telling them is, if somebody asks you if you've been circumcised, you can say yes. You have been circumcised, but in a much more meaningful way. Now this is not... This is not an innovation because back in the law of Moses, back in the time of Moses, Moses predicted that following the rituals was not going to be enough for the Jews. 
for the Israelites, that they were still going to get it wrong, that, that doing these rituals of holiness was not going to be sufficient. And so he looked forward to a time when God would do something different. So all the way back in Deuteronomy, Paul, or, uh, Moses says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and with all your soul so that you will live. From the very beginning of the, of the law of Moses, it was, Moses said, Someday, God's going to have to do something to change your hearts. And he calls that a circumcision of the heart. He's going to have to change you so that you're actually capable of loving him and following him. So when Paul says, you were circumcised with a circumcision not done by hands, then who does it? God does it. And it doesn't just put off a ceremonial piece of flesh, but it puts off all of your earthly, all of your mortal sinful flesh, your whole sinful nature, the part of you that actually needs to be removed. The, one, the thing that God promised from Moses that this was all leading toward, you have received in Jesus. You've received the real circumcision, the real transformation. And he gives us another image for that, which is you have um, been buried with him. You've died and you've been brought back to new life. Now that isn't to tell us that you're not going to have an earthly death. But it is to say that you have died all of you is, have died, but only what is, what is right in you has been brought back to life, right? God doesn't resurrect sin. God doesn't bring back brokenness and corruption. And so that death and life is kind of like a, a way of filtering out what is wrong so that we've been raised to a new life where the, th the things that are broken in us are not eternal. They do not last like the rest of us does. The only thing that lasts is what God has made in us that is meant to last, only our, our risen nature. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus makes us worthy by removing our sinful nature and giving us new life. So if somebody tells you you're not worthy, they say, hey, you're not circumcised. Or they say, hey, you're not this or you're not that. We can say, Jesus has made me worthy to be in God's presence. I mean, frankly, I don't feel like I deserve it either. I agree with you. I, I shouldn't be there. But by his grace, God has allowed me to be there through what Jesus has done for me. Now, I think it is worth asking. It's worth asking why were the Colossians susceptible to this message that they weren't good enough? Why are Christians continually susceptible to the idea that we need more than Jesus? This is me speculating based on what I know of my own heart. I have struggled, I, I struggled for a long time, and I, I still go in and out of it, of feeling like, did I really change? Has God really changed me? Am I really any different? I still want things. I still want more. I don't necessarily feel different. And that can lead me to think maybe either I'm still broken or I don't have the things that I want, so I need more in order to give me what I want. And I'm not saying that I'm not broken, but like I'm not even being fixed. Right? Like we, we feel like something hasn't changed. And I imagine if the Colossians are open to this message, if they're being 
cut by this remark that they're not good enough, then like many Christians, the Colossians weren't always sure that they had been fulfilled by Jesus. Now, I have a theory about why it is that we don't feel fulfilled in Jesus. I've thought a lot about this because it's been a lot of my journey. And I think it's because, it's not because we haven't been fulfilled, it isn't because Jesus isn't enough, but it's because we are still programmed to want the wrong things. Right? We are fleshly people, and it is a lifelong journey to want the right things. Right? I still get annoyed at things that shouldn't annoy me. I still get selfish and greedy, and I still have desires that are for the wrong thing. And Christian transformation, I think, is mostly, or in a large part, about changing my desires. And I, I imagine, I'm still on this journey, but that I imagine that as I, my desires are transformed, what I will find is that I am fulfilled, I have been fulfilled all along. That what God has given me, every step of my walk with him, has been enough. And it was my desire for the, my, my earthly desires, my human nature, that was wanting more or different. That's not necessarily wrong. It's not necessarily wrong that our our flesh constantly wants other things. Our flesh is programmed to want to keep itself going at any any, um, cost. Like, have any of you, like, you started to drown in the water? Like, like you you had a moment of being unsure in the water, and your body just reacted, and then you realized you're fine, like you stood up, and it was waist-deep water, and you felt silly? Because your body is just programmed to keep going at any cost, Right? It's not necessarily wrong, but it is a journey that we have to go through. It's not going to come naturally to you to be willing to give your life for the gospel, right? That's never going to feel natural. Um, and that's, that's an extreme example, but that helps to show the point that, that we do not, just because you've been fulfilled by Christ doesn't mean that you will feel fulfilled by Christ. And so the question is, The question is, how do we know that we have been fulfilled by Christ? And this is a a challenge that has been throughout history, and it has been a major point of debate among Christians, and it is the one in seminary is the only theology that we ever talked about where there were diagnosable psychological conditions that went along with it. There is. They were diagnosing it before we even had psychology. Because one of the possible answers to this conundrum is to say, you can't know whether you've been fulfilled by Jesus. Because God has decided who he's going to fulfill. It has nothing to do with anything you've done. And basically, you find out after death. There is no way that you can know that you've been saved because God picked that you're either in the elect or you're not. And you can go to church every day of your life and do all the right things and not be in the elect. And you'll be the worst person in the world. And it turns out you are elect. Now, most people who believe, what I'm talking about is uh, Calvinism. Although this is, to be fair, this is an extreme form of Calvinism, okay? And most Calvinists don't take it this far anymore. Partly because the one, the one community that was able to like cut itself off and really practice and, and hold on to that belief was um, the colonial Northeast, like New England, right? And this community that had no way of knowing whether they had been fulfilled by Christ, had they noticed a, a, a clear 
uh, tendency toward depression and anxiety and suicide. Because it was a whole community of people who desperately wanted to be with God and didn't know whether they could be. This is a huge burden that Christians will carry. And it is, it is actually, the, the, the tragic thing to me is that what I see in the Bible is it's const, the Bible is offering us a way to address exactly that need and that desire to know God. That is, it's not saying, hey, you, you might be fulfilled in heaven, but you, there's no way to know. The, the Bible is meant to answer that need. And Paul answers that question, and he answers it very consistently. And we saw it in this passage. It just may not have jumped out at you. I'll put that passage back up. Let me ask, look over that passage and tell me if you see a moment when this fulfillment in Christ happens. Where does Paul point to as the moment when they are fulfilled in Christ? When you were buried with him in baptism. There's something interesting about Paul. Paul always assumes that everyone in the church has been baptized. He never, he never makes an argument for being baptized because he's always writing to Christians and he assumes they already have been because that was what the church did. You gave your life to Christ, you got baptized. So he takes that as an assumption. And when you watch for it, when you watch for the way Paul uses baptism as a pastor, what you find is he always points back to baptism as the moment of fulfillment. I'll give you some examples. In 1 Corinthians, the church in Corinth had so many problems, and, and Paul is calling them to do better. And, he, and he, one of the ways that he does that, when he tells them they should be doing better, is he lists all these different sins that they might have been caught up in. And then he says, some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He's saying, yeah, you used to do those things, why are you doing them anymore? You've been baptized. Remember, you changed when you were washed. You were washed clean of that, that version of yourself. You, you were changed in that moment. Another problem they're having is division and, and, and parties and, and you know, like divisions in the church. And when he tells them that they're all part of one church, he said, you, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. How do we know we're part of one body? We became part of one body when we were baptized. You got the same baptism as me, and for each of us, that meant that was when we were brought into the body. One baptism, one body. So if those people got baptized, those people are in the same body as you. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, Are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. This is a key image, and Paul is doing the same thing in Colossians. He's connecting baptism with the, as the moment that you're buried with Christ and brought back to new life. This is one of two reasons why we practice baptism by immersion. The first reason is because the word baptize means immerse. That's, we just don't translate it in, from Greek. We leave it in the Greek 
in our Bibles, but it actually means immerse, dunk. It could even be translated as drowned, but we don't take it that far. <laughs> um, and, but the reason Paul gives for why it's immersing is because that's being buried and brought back up. So you're supposed to be able to remember going down into the grave and coming back up. That's a key moment of the experience of baptism. And so when Paul is talking about why they should stop sinning, he's saying, because you died to sin, remember? So that, remember, Paul expects you to be able to remember your baptism. In Galatians, he says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. This is a bit closer to where we're at in Colossians, where he's saying, you know you've been clothed in Christ because you've been baptized into Christ. Because the Galatians were in the same boat where they were being told they weren't good enough yet. He says, no, you already have Christ because you've been baptized into him, remember? In Titus, Paul says, God saved us not by works of righteousness that we have had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And what is my point here about baptism? It's a lot of theological stuff we could get into and how baptism connects with salvation and, and things that, that we could. We're not going to get into those because I want to focus in on how Paul is using this as a pastor. Paul is telling us, he's telling the Colossians that the only source of true fulfillment is Jesus. The only way that you can be who you were created to be is by following your creator. There is no other source of fulfillment. And it is going to take you time to live into that. You're going to live, spend most, to some degree, all of your life in the in-between of becoming the person that is fulfilled by Christ. But God doesn't want you to spend that time in a question mark. He doesn't want you to spend that time in anxiety and fear. And so whatever else baptism is, baptism is a gift that God has given us as the moment, as the assurance that that fulfillment has happened. We often will struggle with things like, well, what about a person who doesn't get a chance to be baptized before they die, and all these other scenarios. So let me, let me describe it to you like this, because I also don't want to invalidate the faith of people who have not yet been baptized, but baptism is like, I compare it to a wedding. Today, this day, is our seventh anniversary. So today, well, actually yesterday, thank you. No, no, it is today. I was going to say today we celebrate our anniversary. I, I was going to say that today we celebrate our anniversary, but there's so much church stuff today that yesterday we actually celebrated our anniversary. But today we remember that day, September 17th, 2016, when we got married. Now, what are we remembering? Are we remembering the day we fell in love? No. The fact that we were already in love is why we decided to get married. Okay? Are we celebrating the day we decided to join our lives together and to commit to each other? No, that's actually April 7th when we got engaged. 7th? 7th. That's, that's actually important for a different reason. Oh, man. We got engaged on my mom's birthday. Oh. Yeah, I'm, yeah anyway, okay. I'm digging a hole. The point is, it wasn't the day we committed to each other. And so, in a sense, nothing changed on the day we got married. Okay? 
And in a sense, you might also say, if you're looking at those kind of factors, that nothing changes when you get baptized because baptism is not the moment you decided to love Jesus and it's not the moment Jesus decided to love you. And it's also not the moment that you decided to commit to Jesus because hopefully that was the reason you get baptized. You've committed to Jesus and you get baptized because of that. And yet, on September 17th, 2016, everything changed. And it's something that I bring up now as a married person doing weddings. Doing weddings before you get married is weird. But now that I've been married, now that I've been married, one of the things that I tell people is um, this, this moment is something you're supposed to remember and hold on to. In those moments when you don't feel lovable and you're not sure why the other person loves you, you remember this moment that they promised to in front of all your friends and family and they signed a legal document and they bought you a piece of jewelry all to officiate, make that official. And when you're not sure whether you can love that other person, you look back on this moment, you remember that you committed to it. And you say, we became man and wife on that day. And that's the power of that moment. And whatever else baptism is, baptism is a gift from God so that you can look back on that moment and say, that is the moment that I committed to God. And because he has promised to be present in baptism, that is the moment that God in space and time assured me that he's committed to me. So in a way, nothing changes. God loved you long before you got baptized. But in a very important way, everything changes because you can look back on that moment and say, that is when it happened. That's what Paul does. He tells people to look back on that moment and say, that is when it happened. So in those moments when you don't feel fulfilled, when you're not sure that God loves you, when you're not sure that he's working on you, you can remember that he said that when you commit to him and you get baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit and he commits to you and he will transform you and change you. And in those moments when you're not sure whether you particularly want to stick with the work of being changed, you remember, oh yeah, I committed to this. I went into the water. I came back out. I'm different. That's what that moment is supposed to do for us. Because God is present in it. He has promised to be present in it. So as we close, I want to ask you three questions as we take this and apply it to our context today. Number one, the thing I want to ask you is, where are you seeking fulfillment? I hope so. Maybe you haven't committed to Jesus and you're seeking fulfillment in other places. And I will tell you right now that this is a room full of people who can testify to you that there is no fulfillment outside of Jesus. And today is the day to commit to him into being who you were created to be because only the creator can make you who he made you to be. Maybe you have create, committed to that, but you realize you've still been tempted away to finding fulfillment in other things and you need to recommit. I ask you to consider, by your behavior, not by, what you can, not by the words you say, but by your behavior, where are you seeking fulfillment? Now here's my second question. Have you been baptized? Because if you haven't, whatever else it means, it means that you are missing a key experience of assurance from God that he is committed to you, that he is working in you, that you have his spirit, and that he has fulfilled you. That you already have what you need. And what needs to happen now is the shedding of your sinful nature, not the gaining of more divine nature from some other source. When I knew we were talking about baptism, I decided 
just to open this up because we don't know what God is going to do. But there's a famous passage in Acts when uh, Philip, uh, the evangelist Philip, meets a... um, uh, Ethiopian eunuch and, and talks to him about who Jesus is and, and the Ethiopian eunuch decides he's going to follow Jesus. And then as they're walking along the road, as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What would keep me from being baptized? Behind these curtains, we have a baptistry and I have filled that baptistry with water. And we have clothes that you can change into to get baptized. So there may not be anybody here who's, who needs to be baptized, who's in that moment, who, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But here is water. If you need to be baptized, what prevents you? I will tell you, if you want your family to be here, we're recording it so they can see it anyway. When the Apostle Paul became a Christian, the man who, who came to him said, why are you delaying? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. There's no reason to delay, because baptism doesn't mean you understand the faith perfectly. Any more than getting married means I understood Casey perfectly. I certainly did not. And I have, enjoyed, I have loved getting to know her better over these last seven years. It is a response to that commitment to follow Jesus. If you would like to make that commitment, at any point as we're finishing the service, uh, Pastor Rachel is over here. Just go over and talk to her because we can get you set up in a change of clothes so you can get baptized. Then you can change back. And, um, but I love for you to get baptized today because that's the invitation that the Holy Spirit gives us. For the rest of you who have been baptized, the question for you is, are you living like it? Are you living like you've been washed clean? Are you living like you've been given new life? Because baptism is not the end of the story. Baptism is the beginning of the story. Our marriage was not the end of a story because, honestly, our dating period was the least interesting part of our life together. It was the beginning of a story. And so if you have been baptized, you're living that story now, and, and the mission is to follow Jesus like you've been baptized. There are a lot of other decisions you, be, you could be considering as we, as we sing our final song. Um, and if you want to respond by, by connecting with one of our small groups or by serving in one of our service teams, we have the cards and the seat back in front of you. But... As we sing this final song, I'd encourage you to really consider these questions and whatever God puts on your heart to commit to, don't let that moment pass, but act on it. Because every time God calls us to take the next step, he's saying, what's preventing you? What's stopping you? Nothing good is ever stopping you from taking the next step with Jesus. Amen? So again, if you would like to get baptized, come over and talk to Pastor Rachel and... um, Otherwise, we're going to stand and sing our final song together.